government decisions, right, that that were prohibiting these things from happening. So a, a family, in order to buy a property, had to pay more <laughs> because of that government action for, for many, many years. Isn't that right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, for decades, the government has really artificially been constraining housing supply. And so uh, the Housing Task Force in the state legislature was attempting to really legalize housing, to, to build the housing that folks want, not just be able to build the housing that the government wants or that the bureaucrats want. And so, um, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some time because, you know, homes aren't built in factories like widgets. And so, um, even though we've created, uh, we've legalized a lot of these housing types, you know, you still have to have the labor to be able to build it, uh, the materials, the land. And so, unfortunately, um, it takes a long time to unwind this, but I think we've started on a good road to head that direction. Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. Appreciate you joining us for another episode of American Potential. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about housing, something that we haven't talked about yet on the podcast, but I'm excited about it. You know, since 2020, more people have been moving to states like Texas and Florida and South Carolina. Now, the state of Montana has also seen an increase of people moving to their ruggedly beautiful state, which has put uh, more pressure on the housing market. Now, seeing how this issue was affecting his state, the governor of Montana, Greg Gianforte, formed a housing task force in July of 2022, and they were tasked with making recommendations which would make housing more affordable and attainable for the people living in the state of Montana. This task force is made up of people from all different backgrounds, from the Chamber of Commerce to the Montana Water Well Drillers Association. Now, today's guest is one of those members, and he served on the Missoula City Council and as a state legislator, but he has a background in real estate, which was one of the reasons he was asked to join the Governor's Housing Task Force. I want to welcome Adam Hertz to the podcast. Adam, thanks for being with us. Jeff, thanks for having me. Yeah. So first of all, Montana is a gorgeous state. I don't, I don't know if I want to give it too much of a, of a, of a hoorah because man, you've had a lot of people that have moved into the state of Montana over the last uh, several years, haven't you? Yeah, we certainly have. I mean, in some cases we've, to some degree, we've been victims of our own success. We, we really were trying to put Montana on the map and um, from local government to state government, you know, trying to, to um, boost startups and recruit tech companies and and get people to move to Montana. Um, and unfortunately, uh, it worked really well. I shouldn't say unfortunately, but unfortunately, we were not prepared for it to work well. Um, and we ended up with a, an acute housing shortage. You know, another thing that's really, and I've really seen this, you know, in I live in Colorado and we've seen it too. But, you know, since COVID, I think there've been so many people that figured out they didn't have to, you know, be tied to the big city that they lived in or whatever. So they decided to move to a place that's more enjoyable for them. And I know that that's driven, uh, certainly driven a lot in Colorado. I know it's driving a lot in, in Montana, but also the other thing that you guys are, are doing, you're, you're doing it right. And a lot of the policies in Montana are helpful in you getting people to move there. Some of these states, 
Uh, we all hate to mention it, but California being one of those, you know, people are just leaving because they're just tired of the kind of crazy government regulation and that sort of thing. And Montana offers a respite from that as well, right? Yeah, there's no doubt. Uh, my wife and I lead a real estate sales team. And one thing that we saw in, in 2020, 2021, and, and a little bit into 2022 was what we call COVID refugees um, who were leaving mostly states that were, were dealing with draconian COVID laws um, like California, uh, Washington, Oregon. Uh, we get a little bit of Colorado as well. And, you know, that teamed up with folks who could really work from anywhere in the world and would love to be in Missoula where they're, you know, 10 minutes from hopping on a river to go fly fishing or hiking up in the mountains. And uh, that's really what caused us to see such a boom. Yeah. Now, you've served on the city council. You've also been a state representative. What made you want to serve uh, your community in those roles? You know, I've always been interested in government and public policy. Um, actually, as a, as a high schooler, I was in AP government, and that's kind of what made me interested. We learned about the Constitution, and um, so that's kind of where the, the spark started. Um, but really it was just, I was seeing what was happening with our city and, and frankly, I was a little bit naive. I didn't really understand it that well, but I was fired up and I decided to run for city council and, um, I unseated an incumbent, uh, city council person, uh, winning by five votes. So really wow. a, a close race, uh, Missoula is a very, um, leftist city and, and I'm, uh, more on the conservative kind of libertarian side. And so, um, you know, it was it was really uh, an uphill battle at, at one point in time with 12 members on the city council. I was the only conservative member of the city council. So most votes were going one to 11. Um, so it's a it's it's an interesting place. Uh, I'm very much a political minority in the city of Missoula, um, but in the majority at the state level. Yeah. Well, I mean, with by winning by five votes, man, it's it's a it was a good thing you got your wife to vote for you. You know, I ran for office, and I was never sure if my wife was going to actually vote for me or not. I'm pretty sure she did, but in your case, it really made a difference, right? <laughs> well, it really did, and actually, her family was in my district as well. Oh. So my my in laws really uh, were responsible for um, both I, my. Uh, her parents and um, her sisters and their husbands. So actually that we had six votes right there that put us over the top. <laughs> well, now you owe them forever, man. Yeah, owe your in-laws. That's just awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's great, Adam. Um, so what were some of the issues that you were seeing when it came to housing uh, in Missoula and, and how did, how did it get to this point? Yeah, just being in the housing industry, I think, you know, we tend to see this before it's really a, a, major issue with the public. And so when I was in the state legislature in the 2017 legislative session, I was seeing that housing was already becoming unaffordable at that time. And, you know, that was obviously, you know, pre-COVID boom, but we were seeing a big disparity between housing prices and um, income levels. And that was really, you know, largely a Missoula and Bozeman problem, which are two of our bigger cities. It, it hadn't really hit the rural areas that much at that point in time, but I carried a um, housing study bill. So the idea was that we were going to study all of the reasons why we didn't have enough housing supply and try and enact some solutions. And that study bill actually died on the house floor. So folks, you know, in the state legislature didn't think that housing was an issue at that point in time. And then, you know, fast forward to 2022 and it, it had really really become a major issue. We've had such a housing shortage. Interest rates, of course, were near zero. People were flocking into Montana from other states. And Governor Gianforte was very smart to put together 
this housing task force, which has really been a huge success. So a lot of times a, a housing task force is put together um, and the people that get on it start doing things that aren't very free market, right? They start limiting property rights and, and, and that sort of thing. What's different about the way Montana is doing it? Well, Governor Gianforte comes from a private sector background. He founded a very successful tech company, eventually brought it public and, and sold to Oracle. And so he really understands how to get things done and how to build teams. And, and so he put together a really diverse bipartisan team for the housing task force. Um, he wasn't pushing an agenda from the top down. He just put together folks that he knew um, understood the issues and, and, you know, let us take it from there. And so he's his great leadership and uh, the great folks that he put on the housing task force, I think really what made it so successful. We also were given a really short time frame. So the housing task force was first announced in July of 2022 and the legislative session, which Montana meets every other year, starts six months later in January. So we had a really short time frame to really study the issue come up with um, suggestions on policy changes. And uh, so, you know, we had to hit the ground running and, and really do good work. And, and I think, you know, in general, the members of the housing task force understood that Montana, you know, doesn't always have a huge budget. And so we weren't going to try and solve this issue by um, creating more demand with government spending that we really had a, a supply shortage. And so we needed to work on it from the supply side. Talk about the different backgrounds of the people that are on this task force. I mean, that that really is one of the, the I think, reasons that it's it's been successful is it's a really diverse background of, of people, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it would, truly was a bipartisan effort. We had legislators from both sides of the aisle, former legislators, data scientists. Uh, we had economists, um, people from the Well Drillers Association, like you mentioned, uh, builders, real estate developers, um, just, you know, concerned community members, uh, really a diverse background across the state, leaders from tribal nations. I mean, we had folks from really small rural areas that see different challenges than, you know, some of our larger cities. So you came up with some solutions. Let's talk about some of the some of the solutions you came up with, the proposed legislation that you put forth and then eventually got got passed. Yeah, there were there were dozens of bills that eventually did get passed. Um, many of them came from the housing task force suggestions, and some of them, you know, were just a grassroots effort in the legislature. But some of kind of what I would call the lowest hanging fruit that can more immediately bring supply to market uh, were bills like SB three twenty three, which legalized duplexes statewide. So if a if a lot is zoned for a single family residence. And, and it's on city services, meaning city sewer and water. Um, it can now uh, have a duplex on that lot, and the cities can't, you know, create loopholes and, and make it difficult. If if you can put a single family home, you can put a duplex, and so that brings, um, you know, a, an increased uh, number of houses to market. Right now, with high interest rates, um, some of our uh, first time home buyer clients are looking to buy a duplex so that they can live in one unit, rent the other one out, have some help paying their mortgage. It also, you know, creates some um, affordable townhome ownership. So you can build a duplex, you know, draw, draw a line down the middle and create separate ownership units on each side. And so that one's kind of a low hanging fruit that's been popular, um, you know, in other jurisdictions. Uh, but it really was nearly unanimously passed in Montana. 
Um, another one that was similar was SB 528, which legalized accessory dwelling units statewide, again, on city sewer and water. Um, you know, that was just one where uh, maybe older folks can convert a garage uh, to a housing unit so they can rent it out and continue to pay their property taxes or, um, you know, any number of setups that you could you could do just to increase the supply of housing without really having to bring in a lot of new infrastructure or, you know, any government spending. It's really a free market solution where folks can take uh, existing buildings and repurpose them or build new buildings on their land to, to be able to rent out. Now, I, I want to talk to you about some more about some of the other solutions, but I want to point out that both of those, you know, in this, this podcast, we talk about this a lot. Um, government imposed barriers, right? I mean, th- that's for, for however many years, however many decades, perhaps Montana had a prohibition, I guess, on duplexes and, and these secondary dwellings on a lot. Um, that's a government imposed barrier. To housing, and you guys uh, really figured out a free market way to say we're not going to do that. We're going to get the government out of regulating this. Were cities doing that around Montana? There were some cities where accessory dwelling units were legal, and you know most cities have certain zoning districts where duplexes are legal. But if you if you you know go back eighty years or a hundred years, really predating zoning in most of our cities, most of the most beloved neighborhoods in our cities predated zoning. You'll see single family homes and and townhomes and condos and apartments all in the same neighborhoods, you know, and it works really well. And those are some of the most beloved areas, certainly in Missoula, you know, the university district is really eclectic. And then and then zoning came about. And in many cases, it, it was rooted really not in health and safety, which is an understandable reason for zoning. You know, we probably shouldn't be building a coal fired power plant in the middle of uh, the university district for health and safety reasons, but really a lot of these zoning laws were rooted in racism and classism, and and so that's kind of what appealed to the left side of the aisle is really that social justice part of it, and I think the right side of the aisle was really looking for free market solutions, and those two things really aligned. Yeah, and I can't point that out enough that a government decisions right that that were prohibiting these things from happening, right? Either a duplex being in a neighborhood or whatever, that's artificially driving up the cost of a home. So a a family, in order to buy a property, had to pay more (laughs) because of that government action for for many, many years. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for decades, the government has really artificially been constraining housing supply. And so uh, the housing task force in the state legislature was attempting to really legalize housing to, to build the housing that folks want, not just be able to build the housing that the government wants or that the bureaucrats want. And so, um, yeah, it's going to it's going to take some time because, you know, homes aren't built in factories like widgets. And so um, even though we've created uh, we've legalized a lot of these housing types, you know, you still have to have the labor to be able to build it, uh, the materials, the land. And so. Unfortunately, um, it takes a long time to unwind this, but I think we've started on a good road to head that direction. So there's lots of people who will say, and I I come from Colorado, Colorado Springs, uh, where I live is notorious for booms and busts, right? They come in and they build, they, 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 you know, build all kinds of stuff. And then all of a sudden there's too much supply. And so all the developers say, woe is me. And, and they stop building for a while. But, you know, that's the market. And I would rather that they're risking their capital in doing that 
than having the government like dictating it and driving up the cost of housing on families. And, uh, so, I mean, that, that's the great thing about what you've done is you've allowed the market to, to have more say over, over housing, the demand, the supply and demand of, of housing as dictated by families choosing what kind of house they want to live in and where they want to live and all those things. That's driving it rather than government dictates and bureaucrats. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I do some real estate development and I've always told people, I don't see other real estate developers as my competitors in town. We're all competing against the government is the way that it has felt for a really <laughs> long time is, you know, we haven't had to build the very best product or, you know, be in the best neighborhood or, or really always seek those efficiencies because the market was so constrained. There was such a supply shortage. All we needed to do was get through the government barriers to be able to put housing on the market. And that's not the way it should work. We should be competing. Yeah. What, what other, you mentioned those two and I kind of stopped you because I wanted to go off in, in, on that little tangent, but which I thought was an important one, but what else? Were there other things that y'all did? Yeah, another big one was um, SB 382, which was a complete rewrite of Montana's subdivision laws. So Montana first passed the Subdivision and Platting Act in the late 70s, and it had been kind of tweaked a little bit here and there over the years, but really had never had a major overhaul. And so there was a complete overhaul. They call it the Montana Land Use Planning Act now. And so instead of, you know, having this long drawn out public process, subdivision by subdivision. It really creates kind of a front loaded process where cities and counties have to look at their growth area and sort of in some ways pre-plan where growth is going to happen and, and have all of the public hearings up front so that folks can kind of look five or 10 years out and, and see what's gonna happen so that every time a subdivision is proposed, you know, the town doesn't show up with torches and pitchforks and, you know, all of the usual, um, you know, traffic concerns and this or that, that all of that is kind of planned in advance. And then a subdivision becomes more of an administrative process, which really speeds up uh, the developers and builders ability to get housing product to market and respond to demand. Well, yeah. And, and uh, what, what other kinds of things were there other reforms that you passed as well that you think will make a difference? Yeah, there was a lot of just little things too that add up over time. Like for instance, SB 407 eliminated local design review boards. And those are just unelected, you know, community members who are appointed to these design review boards that are scrutinizing things that really don't matter and slow down projects like, you know, little changes in landscaping design and things that can truly slow down a project by months and months. And in some cases, uh, completely deny a project. And so it was really not due process. And in, in a lot of cases, because these are volunteer boards, the folks serving on them, you know, didn't always even really understand what their role was. And so um, having those kinds of um, sort of kangaroo courts <laughs> eliminated, um, you know, really should help streamline things. And there was, you know, there was also in some cases money spent. So we, yeah, we did. You know, most of this was was free market reform, but also, you know, we have an infrastructure shortage and it can be really challenging to respond to the demands uh, of housing if we don't have the roads and sewer and water that we need. And so there were funds allocated uh, specifically to address, uh, you know, new housing infrastructure needs um, and just a lot of little, um, a little reforms, you know, statutory review timeframes for when 
um, you know, the how quickly the government has to respond to various subdivision applications and those sorts of things, just to really um, streamline the process and try to get the government out of the way and let the free market uh, bring supply to market. So I've heard a couple of people say that what Montana did in housing really is a model for the for the country, that the, the, that there ought to be other states looking at what you did and and really making those changes in their states. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. I, I, I mean, I do want to preface it with the fact that these changes take time. And so, you know, there's people already criticizing what the governor and the housing task force and the legislature did because we haven't solved the housing crisis. <laughs> and, you know, it, it takes time. But um, I don't remember one media outlet called it the Montana miracle. We've had coverage in the Atlantic and Business Insider and a lot of nationwide coverage. And I truly do think Montana, you know, has created a model. I don't think the work is done. I think we have a lot to do. And the housing task force actually is is gearing up to get back together again in January of 2024. Um, but I think we picked a lot of the low hanging fruit that other state governments should look at, that local governments could look at if, if state governments um, are not interested in, in, you know, doing those reforms. And so, um, yeah, I'd certainly I'm happy to hear from um, you know, folks in other states to kind of get some some suggestions about what they could do in, in their neck of the woods. I would imagine having all these different uh, backgrounds of people on this task force probably was really helpful when the bills were in the legislature, uh, get, getting them actually getting them passed. Um, it's pretty remarkable that you found consensus on so many of these with all these different backgrounds on the task force. But talk about that in the process of them going to the legislature and helping get these bills through. Yeah. So the task force wasn't like, um, you know, once we, once we had our suggestions and we, we forwarded them on to the governor, individual legislatures kind of picked up, you know, various ideas out of that. And so the task force wasn't like a lobbying group or anything like that, but we had individual members that were certainly, you know, leaning on legislatures, legislators asking them to carry bills and supporting bills and, and those sorts of things. And so, it was a really cool, diverse background. Um, it was great to get to know a lot of the other people on the task force and understand what their concerns were and see where we can find consensus. And frankly, I expected some of these bills to get passed, but I was shocked at the number of bills that actually did make it through the process. And in some cases that they were unanimous or nearly unanimous. And it's not like there wasn't opposition. I mean, the Montana League of Cities and Towns and Montana Association of Counties and the Planners Associations and you know, all kinds of different groups and individuals did oppose a lot of these bills. Some of them they worked with us on. The Montana League of Cities and Towns was really helpful on the subdivision rewrite because the bureaucrats and the cities were just as, um, you know, frustrated with this process as, as you know, the, the, the market was. And so we did have, you know, some, some um, unusual bedfellows in those cases, but it was, uh, it was it was even surprising, I think, to members of the task force how successful this ended up being in the legislature. So, uh, you know, Governor Gianforte uh, really has been a pretty good policy champion on a whole host of issues. I mean, this really, I think, is is a is a is a jewel in the crown. I think this uh, this housing uh, effort that that he really led through the task force and put forth. But there have been a whole host of other things, I think, that Montana, like people are starting to take a look at Montana. For so many years, you had, I don't, I don't want to say caretaker governors, but you had governors that, that weren't really uh, moving the needle on a whole host of things. 
But it seems like Governor Gianforte has done a really good job on a whole host of issues. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm 38 years old, and I will confidently say that Governor Gianforte is absolutely the best governor we've had in the state of Montana in my lifetime. He's presided over the largest budget surplus that we've had while also cutting income taxes. Um, you know, he's done a lot of great work on mental health. He actually has a mental health task force put together now. Um, he's done a good job of turning around our, our prisons and, um, you know, uh, a lot of our departments, Department of Environmental Quality, uh, Department of Natural Resources and Conservation, he's done a great job on the housing front. And he's just really a great leader. His his business experience and leadership um, really shines through in government. And, you know, he's not he's not a, a big ideologue. He's a pragmatic guy and a great leader. And uh, I think Montana is truly blessed to have him as a governor. Well, and, you know, People can choose where they live in America. They don't have to stay in one state. And uh, we're seeing that. You see some of these states that are, you know, high tax rates, lots of regulation that make it very difficult to do business, or they drive up the cost of housing. People are leaving those states. They're fleeing those states, and they're going to places with with lower uh, tax burdens, less regulatory uh, burdens, those sorts of things. And Montana is really, I mean, we kind of started the show talking about this, but Montana's been benefiting from that. But it also obviously is causing some of some of the strains and concerns that you have going on in Montana as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a net gain in general. It's just that we need to respond to, you know, some of the the fallout that came from it, really, which is which is housing supply. I mean, I can't think of uh, many other negative aspects that have happened. We have. Like I said, a budget surplus, a growing population, more healthy population. And I think uh, by and large, it's it's a great thing. And on the housing front, we're not seeing, you know, problems that other states aren't seeing. I mean, this is it's a it's a national problem. There's a lot of states with with housing issues. And I'm, I'm really glad to be in Montana where we're on the forefront of responding to that and um, hoping to see some some reform in other states. Yeah. So what advice would you give other states uh, that, that maybe are facing the same issue, looking at maybe tackling it? I think what's really important is to try and depoliticize the effort. When the housing task force was put first put together, I know there were certainly, you know, people, particularly on the other side of the aisle, hoping that the governor didn't get a win. And it's like, we got to step back. This isn't about political wins. It's about solving an issue. Um, that's a crisis in Montana, and it'll only get worse if we don't do something about it. And so really think we did a good job of depoliticizing the issue and finding consensus. And even though the governor's gotten great accolades and, you know, it's been called the Montana miracle and everything else, it wasn't the, the, what wasn't the purpose of the housing task force? And that wasn't the purpose of this reform. I mean, it was truly solving an issue that Montana was facing. And I think that's really important is you, you can't care who gets the credit for it. Um, and it can't be a political football. It's just got to be an issue that we solve. All right, Adam. Hey, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. And thanks for all your hard work on on this issue. I mean, you've made life better for a lot of Montanans, for sure. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Yeah. So this this is one of those issues that, I mean, think think about the impact housing has on the everyday life of, of people all across America. Montana decided to step up through their governor and through this task force and really solve uh, some of these problems. It's going to take time. Uh, as Adam said, it will take years uh, it would took years to get into the into the problem. It's going to take years to get out of it. 
But these free market solutions are what's going to really make a difference. And uh, uh, again, I can't stress enough, government barriers are are all over. Every time you look around, there's government barriers, and that's certainly the case in, in, the, in housing. And uh, the more we remove those barriers, the better off we'll be. Remember, liberty and freedom are so precious. Always defend liberty and freedom. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com. Potential.com.